By now, everybody knows this criticism. It comes about every year. It's old, but it's still true. All Hallmark Christmas movies are the same. <laughs> By now, everybody knows this. One tweet that echoed this criticism and resonated with thousands of people said this. The plot of every Hallmark movie is about a career woman who is too busy for love, but she has to move to a small town where a handsome local bachelor teaches her about the true spirit of the holiday. It starts snowing and they kiss. There is also a dog. That's the gist of the criticism, but if you think about it, it runs even deeper than this, that all Hallmark Christmas movies are the same. They seem to use the same set in each movie, like it all looks similar, and they also seem to use the same vaguely famous actors from the 1990s. <laughs> well, the amazing thing about this criticism, that all Hallmark movie, Christmas movies looking the same, is that ask a Hallmark Christmas movie fan if they know that. And the answer will likely be yes, and they don't care. <laughs> There's another tweet that echoes that same sentiment. It asks, does every Hallmark Christmas movie have the same plot? Yes. <laughs> Am I still going to watch them and act surprised when Susan falls in love with the small town baker who only wears sweaters instead of falling for the big city CEO? Yes. Well, fans of Hallmark Christmas movies might retort and come back and say, yes, well, I'll grant you all of our movies look the same, but you know what? All of your sports games look the same, too. <laughs> if it's a good game, there's a bunch of mindless action for the first 95% of it, maybe one or two good plays, and then nothing matters until the last 5% when one team win wins, another team loses, and we all go home. Well, the same works for sports fans. We know each game basically looks the same. And you know what? We don't care. <laughs> Today, we read another story of Jesus healing somebody. Haven't we seen this one before? Aren't these like Hallmark Christmas movies by now? Yes and no. In a way, this is the same thing. Jesus heals a man. But you know what? We don't care because it's still amazing. It makes me think of what Jesus says the angels do each time a sinner comes to repentance and faith. What the angels do in heaven. They rejoice before God. They throw a party. Think of how many parties the angels have had in heaven since the 2,000 years that Jesus said that. Has that party gotten old? No, because it's still a miracle. It's still amazing. So yeah, Jesus heals another man here. But even though this is another story of Jesus healing somebody, and it does look really similar, we say at the same time that there are no wasted words in Scripture. That the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to record this event for a reason. So even in a familiar kind of story about Jesus, we see who he is. 
and the uniqueness of this particular story sheds light on the truths about Jesus that other stories don't reveal as clearly. It's still here for a reason, friends. So if you're not there yet, turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 31 to 37. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 843. 843, Mark 7. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed him. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. While this story may seem like a run-of-the-mill episode of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, there are things that it shows about him that we might not expect to see from a story like this. The main thing, the main takeaway of this account of Jesus' life is this, that in all our groaning, in all things that would make us despair, look to Jesus, the one who restores all things as they were meant to be. In all our groaning, Look to Jesus, who restores all things as they were meant to be. This is the crescendo to which this story builds. And this is a huge part of what it means for Jesus to usher in the kingdom of God. And by the end, we'll see why this is such a big deal that Jesus does this. How he alone brings restoration. How he alone satisfies that longing in us that things here have, are not the way they should be. Like I said, though, this is the crescendo to which this story builds. There's a journey to get to that point. And along the way, we see different characteristics about Jesus. In total, I think we see at least six of this account of Jesus showing different things about who he is. You can write them down. I'm going to say them all at the beginning. If you miss them, I will repeat them. Don't worry. You can ask me after, too. Uh, we see that Jesus is patient, famous, kind, powerful, devoted, and mesmerizing. Patient, famous, kind, powerful, devoted, mesmerizing. Like I said, if you missed one, I will say them again. Uh, let's begin first. From the very outset, Jesus is patient. Now, as with many beginnings to new sections in his book, Mark starts this one with Jesus' location with where Jesus is. And when we picked up the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, as we did several weeks ago, we saw that Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, which is about 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, or southwest to the Sea of Galilee. 
And the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his public ministry of teaching and healing. Now, after going to and getting rejected by his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus returned to the region of the Sea of Galilee for what was basically a third tour of ministry there. It was during that time he fed a group of people, likely around 20,000 people, with a plate of food. It was during that time that Jesus walked on the water. And it was during that time he went around healing the sick, as he did in many other places. His tour in Galilee, though, as, as many good things that happened during that, there is an undercurrent underneath all of that. And that undercurrent is opposition, increasing opposition. We saw it in Nazareth. And we see it in Galilee from even official opposition. Herod Antipas, the leader of Galilee, executed John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. And we also saw at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has another run-in with the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are by now plotting to destroy Jesus. So there is an undercurrent of opposition. And it's likely because of that, and that's one of the main factors, that Jesus went outside of the geography of Israel, where we saw last week, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so, uh, like last week, we saw how Jesus left the region of Galilee, gone to the uh, region of Tyre and Sidon, which would be in modern-day Lebanon. His desire there would likely not to be known because he wanted to lay low for a while. But, as we saw, when a ministry opportunity presented itself, he took advantage of it. He did not shy away. Now, our passage today opens by telling us Jesus left this region, went back to the Galilee area, specifically to the region called the Decapolis. If you could hear, uh, you could hear the compound word, deca, uh, polis, um, so ten cities. So it would be a group of ten cities that were predominantly Gentile on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, lots to keep track, I know. So Jesus' journey that Mark describes in verse 31, he would have went north about 20 miles to Sidon, then traveled east and south to eventually get to the Decapolis. And if you're wondering if Jesus had a Fitbit, it probably would have been broken by now. <laughs> he would have held the office record for the most steps. The guy walked a ton. Well, since we've been back in Mark, we've actually gotten a lot of significance of where Jesus goes. His walking is not just inconsequential details. And this week's no different. Now, it's reasonable to think that Jesus is still escaping opposition from Herod and the Pharisees. But his actions in the Gentile lands show something else about him. They show he has a heart for this people. And I think we get a hint of it here because of the specific place that Jesus is returning to. Now, where Jesus was at this point in Mark 7 is the same place he was in, in Mark, at the beginning of Mark chapter 5. That's when Jesus healed the man who was so severely oppressed by demons that the guy lived in caves, cut himself, and couldn't be bound by chains. Jesus cast the legion of demons that was in this man, and those demons uh, entered pigs, and they rushed into the Sea of Galilee. This is maybe the most peculiar scene in all of Mark. And how did the people who witnessed that 
respond to Jesus. They begged him to leave. They begged him to leave the area. So do you see what's going on here at the, uh, at the close of chapter 7? Jesus is returning to a place that told him they wanted nothing to do with him. That's where he's going back to. Friends, that is patience and mercy. And I wonder, how has the Lord shown that kind of patience and mercy to you? Think of how he brought you to faith in himself. Were there times in your life that you look back at now when it was clear that you wanted nothing to do with God and yet here you are? Friends, if we're honest, that's each of us here. And that's what the Bible says about each Christian. That God sought us when we did not seek him. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the only reason we're at this point where we are right now is because the Lord has been patient with us. Friends, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Thank the Lord for the patience that he has shown you. And you know what? Get specific with that too. But we don't just ask the Lord if he has shown this kind of patience to us that he showed to the people in the Decapolis. The answer is yes. But also, we ask ourselves, do we realize that he can show this kind of patience to other people? Do we realize that? Friend, if you don't yet trust and follow Christ as the one who saves you from your sin and as the one who is the king of your life, this patience is for you. This patience here. The fact that you're here right now is a sign of that, is a sign of God's patience to you. Don't believe me? Don't believe that God is patient? Ask anyone around you. Ask their experience with the Lord. Don't believe that God is patient like he is here in Mark 7? Find other examples in Scripture. You know what one comes first to mind? Is the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, how he used to be a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, calling himself the chief of sinners. But Paul received mercy. And you know the reason he gives? The reason why Paul received mercy from God? He says this, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The point is if the Lord was patient to a group of people in the Decapolis who wanted nothing to do with them, and if the Lord was patient to the man who was the chief of sinners, Friends, his, he can be patient with you as well, and he is. So the last call of the Bible is Jesus relaying this kind of patience he displays here in Mark 7. Revelation twenty two seventeen. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take, wa take the water of life without price. 
Friend, there is still time. God is patient. But he will not be patient forever. The second thing we see about Jesus from this story is that he is famous. He is famous. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Like it's been in other places, Jesus' reputation precedes him here. Here is a group of people who bring a disabled man and beg Jesus to help. And the reason they're able to do this is because they've heard something about Jesus. There is a buzz about Jesus. If Twitter was around back then, Jesus would be trending. If the 24-hour news cycle was on it, he would be in there on every hour that he's coming to town. We've seen already in Mark that fame wasn't Jesus' goal. And we don't really have to think too hard to realize that. For the guy who could heal people just by touching somebody, for the guy who could feed thousands of people from a plate of food, if Jesus wanted to be famous, he did a bad job. He could have been far more famous than he was. Further, as his ministry continues, Jesus constantly points out the cost of following him. He tells his followers constantly, count the cost. I'm going to be crucified. And despite all of this, despite this not being Jesus' aim, this is still the Son of God. And people everywhere have a sense that something unique and special is going on. But Jesus' fame in this region, the Decapolis, it's worth dwelling on for a moment. And what do this group of people know about Jesus? And how do they know it? What do they know, and how do they know it? Well, very simply, this group of people knew enough about Jesus to believe that he was able to do something about a person who was in a desperate need. And notice, they weren't haphazard about that belief either. They didn't happen to stumble upon Jesus at the local market and say, hey, you're Jesus, right? We've heard some different rumblings about you, like some different rumors that you're able to help people who are in a tough spot. You know, we know a guy. Do you think you can help him out or no? No, no, no. They came to Jesus. They were not haphazard about this. They came to Jesus and begged him to heal this man. That's how persuaded and convinced these people were that Jesus could do something. I'm just a sidebar. I like these from time to time. <laughs> I couldn't help but think that this is another indictment against the Pharisees who had previously scolded Jesus for healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. They scolded Jesus for that. In contrast to them stands a group of Gentiles begging Jesus to heal someone who would be an outcast in their society. Friends, it's a reminder of how awful it is for people who claim to be close to God to have no compassion for weak and vulnerable people. I think that contrast is poignant here. Well, this is what they knew about Jesus, but how did they know it? How did they get to that point? How did they know about Jesus? I think we've got to go back to chapter 5 when Jesus was in this region before. I think there's good reason to believe that they know about Jesus 
because of the man who Jesus healed earlier in that region. I mean, think about that guy. The whole town would have known about that guy. I mean, back when Mark describes him in chapter 5, this man who was possessed by a group of demons, it says that no one could bind him. Seems to apply that several people tried to bind him and couldn't. Word definitely spread around town. This is a guy with superhuman strength who lives in caves. After, and Jesus healed this man with just a word. And after he did that, what did Jesus tell this man to do? You can look at chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus told this man to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And Mark goes on in verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. All right, fast forward back to where we are, Mark 7. And we have to think that this crowd of people in the Decapolis who brought to Jesus a deaf and mute man, that crowd of people is the fruit of them hearing about what Jesus did for that demon-possessed man. Think about the transformation that happened in this people of the Decapolis. They went from begging Jesus to leave them to begging Jesus to heal someone. And like uh, the Lord brought that change through the witness of one faithful person. Like Jesus says in another place, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It might look small to start, but never underestimate how God can use a small thing in a mighty way. Now, another example of this, a, a modern-day one, it's, it's kind of a silly example, and it's worth probably more discussion. But friends, do you know that some Christians' testimonies begin with seeing a John 3.16 sign at a football game? Do you know that's how God has gotten the attention of some people? We might pass judgment on something that seems so small, so insignificant, so foolish. But it's no different than what's going on here. God used one faithful witness. We see a change in attitude toward Jesus in a large group of people that started with one person. We might be tempted to be discouraged ourselves, saying, what impact can we make? Friends, the Lord is on our side. Continue with the story. After the people begged Jesus to heal this man, what does Jesus do next? We pick up in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphah, that is, be opened. And the way Jesus treats this man Jesus shows that he is kind. And the way Jesus treats this man, Jesus shows that he is kind. Now, before Jesus even heals this deaf and mute man, he does three things. You slow down, you can spot them. 
Before he heals this man, the first thing Jesus does is he took him aside privately away from the crowd. Now, Mark doesn't give us Jesus' thoughts uh, for doing this, but it could be for a couple of different reasons. It could be that Jesus didn't want to make this man a spectacle. It could be that this man was scared and uneasy around a group of people. Either way, by removing this man from the crowd, Jesus communicates to this man that he's not just another face in the group. He's an individual. There's something else Jesus does even before the man, even before he heals this man. He touches the man's ears and tongue. Now, we haven't seen Jesus do anything like this before. It, it seems kind of strange. So what gives? Well, some say that Jesus was going along with the standard protocol of the day for healing someone. That many, uh, many people would try to apply different balms to the areas of the body that was infected. So maybe Jesus is doing something like that. Maybe. But I don't think we shouldn't overthink this. I mean, how would this man have communicated? He would have communicated with sign language, with feeling, with motion. So Jesus is talking to this man on his level. He touches his ears, saying something akin to, I'm going to fix this. He touches his tongue, says, I'm going to fix this. Was well, another thing Jesus does, even before he heals this man, he looks up to heaven and he sighs. Here Jesus shows this man that this healing would not come from magic, it would come from God. And as he looked to heaven, Jesus did so with a deep sigh. He's communicating that he knows that this isn't how it's supposed to be. That since sin has entered the world, it has ravaged his people. So Jesus enters the world of this deaf and mute man, looks in his eyes, and engages with the pain this man felt. He is kind to have individual care for him. So we put all these things together even before the healing happens, and it's a touching scene. In each of these actions, Jesus displays his individual care and kindness. Because realize, friends, that every time Jesus healed somebody, he didn't take them aside privately. He didn't speak to them in sign language. But you know what? He did so for this man. Because he knew the exact care and kindness that he needed. Friends, do you know that Jesus has that same heart for each one of us here? Jesus knows about all our troubles. That song goes. This is the heart that Jesus has for each of us. You are not another face in the crowd. You are a name written on the palm of his hand. Jesus knows our individual pasts, our individual sins, and our individual weaknesses, and he takes them upon himself. So we read earlier from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15, says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sympathize with our weaknesses. Enters into our world. Engages with the pain we feel. Writing about this kindness, writing about this sympathetic high priest, Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan pastor, says this, Christ, when he came to an elect child that was sick, whom he healed, his manner was, first, 
by sympathy and pity, to afflict with their sickness, as if it had been his own. Now in the like way or manner unto this, of bearing our sickness, he might bear our sins too. For he being one with us, and to answer for all our sins, therefore when he saw any of his own to sin, he was affected with it, as if it had been his own. That's this sigh that Jesus has before he heals this man. And as he groaned before he heals this man, so did Jesus groan as he heals us. The Son of God did not remain distant, but saw our plight, saw our pain, saw our guilt, entered our world, took that upon himself. Truly, the Apostle Peter says, he has borne our sins in his body on the tree. Friends, reflecting this to others is just as important as knowing the heart of Christ for us. So it's important to know that Jesus has this individual care and kindness and love for each one of us. It's also important to know that we're called to reflect his love to other people. That seems like basic 101 Christianity, but boy, do we need a reminder of it uh, pretty much every day. Each individual has their own unique burdens, whether it be physical disabilities, whether it be a history of experiencing abuse, whether it be going through a divorce, whether it be those who've had bad experiences with church. Friends, we want to care for individuals knowing their unique burdens so that we can carry them with them. But more than that, we also say that each individual not only has his or, own, his or her own unique burdens, each individual also has his or her own unique sin. His or her own personal story of willful rebellion against God. And it's not just bad habits. It's actually a lifestyle, a love for living for themselves. That's each one of us. And so we show individuals that in Jesus' great love, he died in our place to satisfy the good judgment of God for our rebellion against him. And as we feel the pain of individuals' burdens and sin, we enter their world, we bear burdens, we weep with those who weep. That's a painful thing. That's a thing that would cause us to sigh and groan. As it is painful, though, we remember that it is nothing compared to the pain that Christ felt for us. So we've spent time reflecting what Jesus shows about himself to the point when he heals this man, up to that point. But what does he show about himself when he actually does it, when he actually heals this man? Well, you'll probably get several things out of it, but we'll settle with one main one, power. Point four, Jesus is powerful. You pick up in the middle of verse 34. It says, he sighed, said to him, Ephaphah, that is, be opened, and his ears were opened. His, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, Jesus communicated to the man what he was about to do via sign language. 
But that was his means of communication. That wasn't how Jesus healed this man. How did Jesus heal this man? He spoke. It's his word. This is the same word through which Jesus upholds the universe, as Hebrews 1, 3 says. Friends, this power through the word is why we're so committed to expositional preaching of the Bible. Why we're so committed to exposing God's word to ourselves. Because we believe God still acts, uses, and gives life through his word. That's why it says in Hebrews, again, that his word is living and active. And do you see where it says, verse 35, that his tongue was released? See that? Literally it says, the chain of his tongue was loosened. This is what Jesus has power to do. To break chains that enslave us, namely, the chains of sin. Charles Wesley writes in his hymn, he sets the prisoner free. Jesus, at the outset of his ministry, quoting Isaiah and applying it to himself, he says he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Beloved, our faith in Christ, our freedom from sin, begins with God speaking to our hearts by his spirit, through his word, to break our heart open that we may see our sin and see Jesus for the first time for who he really is. We see an example of it. Again, we read it earlier. Acts 16, describing Lydia. We see one short but powerful phrase. It says, the Lord opened her heart. Friends, God has the power to do this. And we don't. It would be like us taking a blind man, trying to give him sight by taking him outside and just say, look at the sun. No, that won't work. God must do it. Jesus has the power to break the chains of a broken tongue and he has the power to break the chain of a hardened heart. So knowing God's word is this powerful, Will we continue to expose ourselves to it? Knowing that God does this and God alone does this through his word, this kind of power, will we continue to expose ourselves to it? Let's live in this, friends. What else will we live in? Let's ask God to work in us through his word to do what he's shown he can do with it here in Mark 7, to do what he's shown he can do with it throughout church history. Think of a famous quote from Martin Luther, kind of the founding father of the Reformation back in the 1500s. He looks back to all that has happened, and he says this famously. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, I did nothing. The word did it all. Let's live in this. Expose ourselves to it. Knowing God has this kind of power to act through his word. Now, if God has power to do this through his word, will we expose other people to it? 
will we expose other people to it who are still bound by sin? Because we know that it's through the word of God that he sets the captives free. So if we're going to do that, expose others to the word of God, I think we need to be saturated with the Bible so that it just flows out of us. We need to be like John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan, said, prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. It's not what we're trying to be weird. We just want to live in this so we communicate that this is a key part of our lives and we know the power God has through his word. Power to give hearing to a deaf man and voice to a speechless man. Well, after Jesus spoke and healed the man, he does a strange thing. We've actually seen him do this before. Verse 36, he charges them not to tell anyone what happened. Now, the best way to make sense of this is remembering what this shows about Jesus. It's a point five. It shows about Jesus that Jesus is devoted. Jesus is devoted. He's devoted to his main mission. Now, how does Jesus' command to silence show that? Now, we've answered that throughout Mark because in Mark, we've seen at least five times that Jesus does the same thing. But it's worth reviewing what we've said. Jesus is the Son of God. But he's the Son of God who's come first not to free Israel from the Roman Empire. He's the Son of God who's come to free his people from their sin, to give his life as a ransom for many now, if people only knew Jesus by what he did, by his mighty works, they'd be more likely to conclude that Jesus is a freedom fighter and not the suffering servant, as described by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And we've seen this on occasions when people are confused about this, when they gather to make Jesus their king. So what Jesus does here is that he doesn't want people to be confused about what he has come to do. He's devoted to his main mission. Now, just to throw a wrench in this, the tricky thing about this situation is that the last time he was here, the last time he was in the Decapolis, he told the man he healed to tell everybody. So it's like a parent who tells one of their kids, uh, you can't do something, and then another one of their kids, they can do the very same thing. That will not create a happy household. So what gives with Jesus kind of being flip-floppy? Well, I think Jesus is being careful about the reputation he's building. Now, you can see that they're excited, but he wants them to know that he's not just a wonder worker and a healer. That'd be like only knowing about Burger King's chicken. Yeah, their chicken is good, maybe. Um, their chicken is good, but you don't know Burger King if you only know Burger King's chicken. You need to know their burgers, the main thing they're about. So Jesus defines what it means for him to be the Messiah on his own terms, not on their terms. And people won't know fully who he really is. It won't click until after his death and resurrection. Mark's really building to that first eureka moment at his crucifixion. Mark 15, 39, when a Roman centurion looks upon Jesus and says, truly this man was the son of God. 
So Jesus' mission, Jesus' devotion to his mission, shows up here. That he's careful not to confuse people in what he came to do. And for us, we want to keep that same clarity. We want to keep that same clarity about who Jesus is. We don't want to confuse the benefits of Jesus with Jesus himself. So friends, Jesus can heal your marriage. Jesus can transform your addiction. Jesus can transform your parenting. Jesus can make you happy. Those are benefits of the gospel. But that's not the main thing Jesus does. Jesus died as the propitiation or sacrifice for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God that we might be reconciled to God because of his work in our place. That's the main thing Jesus does. That's the thing we desperately need. So let's close out the story, shall we? Jesus has been patient in making another trip to the Decapolis where his reputation preceded him after what he had previously did in the region. Jesus was kind in dealing with a man that the people had brought to him. And Jesus was powerful enough to heal him merely by speaking. And after the miracle, Jesus guarded his reputation and sought to be careful to clarify what he's come to do. The story closes with verses 36 and 37. It says this, But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus telling people not to say anything about what they've seen him do seems to work as well as Clark Kent's glasses. I mean, he puts on these glasses and he says, You see, I'm not Superman. Really? That's supposed to work? (laughs) Jesus didn't seek fame, but his greatness was just too obvious. He couldn't be hidden. Now, the people don't obey the Lord here. And as we've read in Mark, it's a typical response after this kind of command from Jesus. But even when this people's witness of Jesus is not quite what it should have been, it is remarkable nonetheless. The people here are astonished, not just that Jesus healed this man, but because he has done all things well. Consider what we just saw, how Jesus has handled this situation. Jesus knew the exact kind of care, the exact kind of kindness this man needed. Consider how powerful Jesus healed this man. How powerfully he did that. Afterwards, this man didn't just kind of speak, you know, speak with a stutter. No, he spoke plainly. And that was instantaneously. So, what these people were seeing was a preview, a preview of the new creation, a preview of the kingdom of God. You remember the first creation? Well, we weren't there, so remember Genesis 1, more specifically. What God saw about his creation after he had finished it. He saw that it was very good. So here's Jesus, restoring this man to what he was intended to be. And after he does this, the people see the same thing that God saw about his first creation. That it was good. And then they go on. 
They say he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It alludes to that passage in Isaiah we read earlier. When Isaiah describes what will happen when God's kingdom comes. The deaf hear. The mute speak. So here then is a preview. That this patient, famous, kind, devoted Jesus is the one who brings in the new creation is the one who brings in the kingdom of God. I've always loved, uh, one of the things I've loved about the movies is you go uh, and you sit through like the 20 minutes of previews, but one of the cool things about the previews, is cool, it's kind of funny, is that there's a wall in between each of them. You know when that green screen comes up? You know, the following preview is intended for all audiences. And during that wall, you can hear little whispers from people in the theater you can hear their whispers of evalu- evaluation talking to the, their friend beside them. And their whispers, you know, they, they talk about the preview they just saw. And they range from a lot of different things. They say, oh, man, that looks awful. There's no way I'm going to see that. And then she's like, ah, I don't know. I, I might see that on, on video, but not, but not in the theater. And then there's a, there's a comment of, oh, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> Friends, this preview here is meant, to say, meant for us to say the last one, that we can't wait to see that. What Jesus does here for one man on a small scale, he's going to do on an exhaustive scale, everywhere, restore things as they were made to be and even better. Isn't this, isn't this what we are longing for? in a world full of things that would remind us that it's broken. Full of things that would make us groan, make us despair. Let's keep watching the previews. Remember the promise that Jesus will restore all things. Friends, he's already begun that work. It's more than just this preview here of what he does for Mark 7. He's begun that work in his death and resurrection, that he has rose victorious over sin and death. The victory is won, and his return to restore all things is guaranteed. Friends, in all of our groaning, look to Jesus, the one who restores all things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for your patience toward us. And not just that you are kind and patient, but thank you for your power that you alone have. We cannot give ourselves sight. We cannot give ourselves voice or hearing, but you can. You speak and we're brought to life. We cannot heal ourselves of our sins, but you took our sins in your body on the tree. Lord, thank you. We want to live in this. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.